Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. For more than a decade... Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon were the dynamic duo leading the charge for Scottish independence and building the SNP into a political force to be reckoned with. These are two people who, over the years, you could not put a cigarette paper between. Mentor and protégé, leader and deputy leader of the SNP and of Scotland. And here they are, daggers drawn against each other, but now, the vision that transformed what began as a small minority into a wildly popular party of government could be in jeopardy. Nicola and others would be the first to admit the party and the movement is bigger than an individual. With elections for the Scottish Parliament looming in May, what does the scandal and drama of the last few weeks mean for the future of the SNP and for Scottish independence? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the fallout in Scotland. What now for the SNP? Friday, February the 26th, on a crisp clear Edinburgh morning. The world of Scottish politics seemed to hold its breath as the charismatic former First Minister Alex Salmond strode into the Scottish Parliament again. He was due to give evidence at the inquiry into the Scottish Government's handling of allegations that he'd sexually harassed staff. Political watchers had waited months for this moment with rumours hinting that Salmon's evidence could sink his political successor, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon. I had been on the phone 
during the morning to find out what kind of mood Salmond was in. And a couple of his colleagues had said to me that he seemed in quite a chipper mood. He was driving down from Aberdeenshire to Edinburgh, which is a long way. He drove into the car park underneath the Scottish Parliament just in case there was any press people outside. John Boothman is the political correspondent in Scotland for the Sunday Times. I saw him as many times before marching towards the door in the parliament as I sat ensconced in my living room on my sofa and he had a mask on. Yeah, he had a wee bounce to him when he went in. He looked calm and he looked cool. I mean, he's an old hand, Alex Salmond. Watching him bounding into the parliament again, was it was it just like the old days? Yeah, there was definitely, very definitely a touch of that. And that was what his colleagues and his friends had said to me in the morning when I spoke to him. Uh, very much the old Alex Salmond loves being in the limelight, knows where to place himself, knows how to strike, not just make an argument, but strike a tone. Collectively, these events shine a light <clears throat> on a government whose actions are no longer true to the principles of openness, accountability and transparency, which are the core principles on which this Scottish Parliament was founded. In the opening statement that he made, which I think lasted, I think, nine minutes or so, and it was a detailed statement. As we said afterwards, it didn't miss and hit the wall. Tell, tell me, what was the moment in that testimony that really made you stop in your tracks? The big moment for me during that opening statement was when he spoke about things that we'd heard in the ether that there had been a dark plot against them. There are many other messages, uh, and what they speak to is behaviour which I would never have, never have countenanced from people I'd known in some cases for 30 years. He stopped short of using the word conspiracy. In my opinion, uh, there has been behaviour which is about not just pressurising the police, like the one you've read out, but pressurising witnesses, a collusion with witnesses. But he spoke really very, very, very strongly about how he thought a whole series of forces in Scottish society had been lined up against him. It was a remarkable moment. But to understand how we got here, we have to take a step back, all the way to 2018, when Alex Salmond was accused of sexual harassment by two female civil servants. The Scottish government eventually admitted it had botched its investigation into the allegations and paid Salmond's legal fees of more than £500,000. Then, in January 2019, Alex Salmond was arrested and charged with multiple counts of sexual assault, including attempted rape. Once again, he was cleared of all 13 charges after a trial last March. There are now two inquiries, one about the Scottish Government's handling of the investigation into the complaints against Alex Salmond and the other into whether Nicola Sturgeon broke the ministerial code. Now, where Nicola Sturgeon was embroiled in this is that after the court case, it emerged that Nicola Sturgeon had had a variety of meetings with Alex Salmond at his request. She had spoken to him three times in person and twice by telephone. 
And part of the committee's job was really to try and find out what those meetings were about. And that has been really, again, you know, at the centre of much of the debate and much of the testimony between Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon in the past couple of weeks. Basically, people have differing accounts of what happened at those meetings. You know, it has to be said that although both Salmond and Sturgeon performed absolutely amazingly, as you might expect, there are big, big differences on the accounts that both of them had of the set of circumstances that led up to these meetings and the meetings themselves. These are the subject of the main salmon testimony in terms of whether Nicola Sturgeon broke the ministerial code and the things that Nicola Sturgeon told the Scottish Parliament about these meetings has led to Nicola Sturgeon being accused of misleading Parliament. So just explain to us, how is she supposed to have broken the ministerial code? Alex Salmon claims Nicola Sturgeon has breached the ministerial code by misleading Parliament on a number of occasions about the nature of a meeting in her house on the 2nd of April 2018. The First Minister told Parliament that she first learned of the complaints against Salmond when he went to her home for that meeting, and Salmond says this is just not true and is a breach of the ministerial code. He has evidence that he submitted to the inquiry that people could corroborate his version of events and not hers. Uh, He goes on to say that uh, she breached the ministerial code because she failed timorously to report these meetings to civil servants, which she was bound to do under the code, and that was no proper record kept of the meetings. So these are pretty serious complaints. Nicola Sturgeon, for her part, has a completely different version of events. She said initially that she had met him because she felt as if she needed to listen to what an old friend had to say. She does insist that she first heard the details of the complaints against him at that meeting, though she had heard of and had various suspicions of other matters related to harassment that had been uh, swirling around the Scottish Parliament before then. So there's a conflict between the two of them about the nature of the meetings. And whilst watching all of this play out, I know in you know across the media it's been described as sort of a psychological drama, watching those hours of testimony with both Alex Salmond and and Nicola Sturgeon. Did you get a a sense of how historic a moment this is for the party? Look, this has been absolutely incredible insofar as these are two people who over the years, and I'm talking about 25 years, you could not put a cigarette paper between. Mentor and protégé, leader, deputy leader of the SNP and of of Scotland. And here they are, daggers drawn against each other in two separate testimonies to the parliament. It's really split the SNP asunder. The SNP's whole reputation in government, whole reputation as a party, has been built over the years, really this century, on the basis of a strict internal discipline. If there was ever a fight in the SNP, you kept it in the room and it shouldn't come out into the public. And here we have really unprecedented the kind of language that's been used by two people who there was no closer political couple in the whole of the United Kingdom 
than Alex Salmond or Nicola Sturgeon. Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon have loomed large over Scottish politics for decades, between them driving the SNP's remarkable trajectory to power. But how did it evolve from a small fringe party to the party of government? I asked a former member of the Scottish Parliament who watched the party multiply around him since he joined more than two decades ago. When I joined the SNP, we had about nine or 10,000 members. We had three MPs at the time. So if you were young and politically interested, it wasn't a brilliant career move. Stephen Gethins was an MP for North East Fife. And in a past life, I was a special advisor to Alex Hammond. He's been a member of the SNP since the 1990s. I joined just before I went off to university and I've been a, a member of the party ever since. Was it a very different party back then? I've certainly fought more campaigns for the SNP when we weren't winning elections than when we were. It was a nice team spirit. When you went to conferences, you knew everybody, absolutely everybody. There were friends that I made when I first joined the party who remain good and firm friends and will do for for life. And what was it like? You know, you were clearly working so closely with Alex Salmon. What was he like as a character? He could be very robust. He had very, very high standards that he expected of people for his faults. I challenge anybody to spend half an hour in Alex's company and not learn something. He was tireless. I mean, he, absolutely tireless. I can remember going out campaigning with him even when things weren't going so well in 2000 and, say, 2005. He'd walk down the street and engage with everybody. And it's the same with Nicola now, to be fair. There was never any hiding the leader away from the public. He'd speak to everybody, whether they supported the party or not. One of the, the things that characterised Alex Salmon's leadership in the SNP was he had what I would call a big tent. He brought together all sorts of strands of the nationalist movement, mainstream people, people on the left and people on the ultra-left in particular who supported independence, and he kept them in a big, big tent. Nicola Sturgeon interestingly enough, has a much smaller tent and it's much more highly centralised. And the people she surrounds herself with are people who are more like-minded with her than Salmond would ever have had in his position. What happened to really sort of cause the rift between Alex Salmond and the party? What was the moment that really set in? I think a lot of us were really disappointed when, and I know I was, really disappointed when he went to Russia today when he decided that that was, given that what we know about Russia today. Russia Today is an English-language news network backed by the Kremlin and accused by the Foreign Office of spreading disinformation. Welcome to the Alex Salmon Show from Scotland, where we turn once again to the issue which has dominated the last year. I felt particularly disappointed in a past life. I worked in the NGO sector. I worked in the international NGO sector, um, focusing in the South Caucasus and former Soviet Union. I think I was aware, probably better than most in the parliamentary party, 
of what the Kremlin were capable of, as we've seen illustrated in Georgia, Ukraine, the Baltic states, and and Syria in a devastating way, and Chechnya in a devastating way. So I, I I think I felt particularly disappointed by that by that move. And you have to remember that Russia today, and you might not like them, or you know, and I, I don't, but they're Ofcom regulated. That you know, conservative and Labour members and other political parties were regularly on their programs. So yes, it was disappointing, but you can't stop people from getting on with their lives. And John, just talk me through talk me through Nicola Sturgeon's journey through all of this. You know, sort of going from being very much in the shadow of Alex Salmond when he was leader to having a a, a bit of a an image change when she took over and, and where she stands now. The SNP under Alex Salmond, although he was the dominant figure, Nicola was always there in his shoulder. She has always been a steady and competent deputy. She struck rigidly to the internal discipline in the party and followed Salmon's lead. Uh, when she took over, it was clear she had obviously had a big, big part in the referendum campaign, so she was very popular amongst the leadership, and that way it remains. She She's adored by big, big sections of the SNP, during the pandemic has been really, really something quite special. They've made the same mistakes along the road as the UK government, but Nicola has come out smelling of roses because she's been up there every day uh, on the television and televised briefings in everybody's living room. She's come across as competent. She looks as if she's had a plan. She's been this amazing constant in people's lives. But with Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond still at war and the party at a crossroads, what does it mean for the future of the SNP and Scottish independence? For more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Does sort of feel like in the last week or two with the SNP so much in the news and so much of the leadership sort of looking like it's in a state of crisis, that it feels like a good time to go back and look at how we've got here in terms of the party. So take us back to the very start. What was the SNP like before the age of Salmond and Sturgeon? The first time the SNP ever had an elected member was in a by-election in the 1940s. There were certainly small waves of support here and there for independence. Then in the 60s, nationalism re-emerged when Winnie Ewing won a by-election in 1967. But it never quite caught on. In the February 1974 election, though the SNP won seven MPs, seven seats in Scotland. In October 74, they won 11 seats. And that was the time, you will remember, just when Scottish oil first burst in the scene. So during the late 70s, there was a big burst of popularity for the SNP based around a big slogan about it's Scotland's oil. In 1979, though, in 1979, there was a vote of confidence in the then Jim Callaghan Labour government. The SNP sided against Labour and what happened was it ushered in the era of Margaret Thatcher and throughout the 80s and the 90s the SNP almost never recovered from being described in Scotland as tartan Tories and Mm. it wasn't until really the advent of the Scottish Parliament which was set up in 1999 after the referendum in 1997 where the SNP really came to prominence. It's really this century that they've they've come to the levels and the prominence that they have. Talk me through, over that period, as the party gained momentum, what's happened to the Scottish appetite for independence? One of the things, one of the interesting features of the 2014 referendum was that Having won 45% of the vote in that referendum, Salmon had gone off, said the dream would never die in his famous speech on his resignation from the leadership of the SNP. One of the things that happened was that there was a gigantic explosion in membership for the party. It grew from some 25,000 to about 120,000. Now, Scotland's a small country. There's 4.2 million voters. My arithmetic tells me that at that time that meant that one in 40 people in Scotland were members of the party, which is really quite astonishing. In 2014, the referendum for Scottish independence was lost. In the immediate aftermath, everybody was devastated. Of course you're devastated when you lose something as important as that. Alex Salmond stood down. The referendum may have been deemed a failure, but the SNP was suddenly riding high in the polls. You have to remember in that very short period, there was a membership surge. The party went from some like 20,000 members to 100,000, 120,000 members. There was a general election coming up as well. And there was also a sense that the Yes movement had done incredibly well. You know, I can remember having to go on to TV panels as a pro-Yes commentator and talk about a new opinion poll that had come out that maybe had us on 29, 28 or 29%. And then you go through 
a really exciting referendum process which really engages with the population. It did engage with a huge turnout and people really switching on to politics during that period. And then you achieve 45% on something like an 85% turnout of the population. And then in the aftermath, when you have all these new members joining. So I think there was a sense of excitement that the story wasn't at an end, that to sort of coin a phrase that Alex Ammond used at the time, the dream wasn't dying. I can remember sitting on the bus and hearing people argue about politics in the seats behind me or walking down the street. People were discussing it. And crucially, and you can never ask for anything more than this, people were taking your proposal seriously. They were discussing it with friends and colleagues and really thinking about and valuing their vote. So that was something that was really exciting. And it was switching the electorate in Scotland onto politics and onto a world that could be different. And they've never quite been switched off again. So that was something, I think it woke something in people in politics in Scotland that everybody tries. You know, anywhere in the world, you want people to be interested in politics, that when turnout's down, there is a failure in the wider politics that people are not engaged in politics. We're all politicians. We're all affected by politics, whether we like it or not. So I think that that switching people onto politics was exciting. I think it told us something about the movement and told us something about the country as well. I remember sort of talking to people in Scotland who'd suddenly become SNP supporters. A lot of people would say, in a way, now that the independence, the referendum was over and the question of independence was off the table, they felt like they could vote for the SNP because they liked them. They liked the characters, yeah. they, they liked what they were doing, but they didn't necessarily want independence. So actually losing the referendum made it possible for them to be supporting the SNP without thinking independence would be a consequence of it. Very possibly. So I think before 2007, we were hearing all sorts of horror stories about what might happen when the SNP came in power. Just very similar horror stories to the ones you hear about what would happen if there was independence, um, how terrible it would all be. And then the SNP come in and they're seen as governing competently, effectively. Yes, people had voted no, 55% to 45% in 2014. And, and, and yes, you would have spoken to some people who thought, well, maybe the issue's gone away now. I wouldn't underestimate the impact that the Brexit referendum had, the four years of utter chaos and mayhem, and also the, the sense that the UK was isolated amongst its international partners. I would not dismiss that out of hand for the impact that's had. And you've seen that on poll after poll after poll, where something like John Curtis reckons about 20% of people who voted no in 2014 have now shifted, and that's they're very significant numbers in political terms. And how much of the popularity of the SNP, which has, you know, it's mushroomed, it's really exploded after 2014 and, and, and the referendum, how much of that came down to the cult of personality? First, Alex Salmond and now Nicola Sturgeon. How important are they to the, the future and the history of the SNP? Well, they, they have been the big figures in Scottish politics since 2007. Since 2014, Nicola Sturgeon has proved to be a charismatic leader, a sure-footed leader. They are not a very radical administration at the end of the day, the SNP. Some people think they're tired, some people think they're complacent, but the one thing that has been true is that Nicola Sturgeon looks like and is 
the commanding figure in Scottish politics. The big comparison that's made in Scotland about politics, and this has been seen in particular during the pandemic, is the comparison between Nicola Sturgeon on the one hand and Boris Johnson on the other. And people would argue that over the course of the pandemic, that whilst Boris well, has on more than, well, on a number of occasions looked less sure-footed. Nicola has been steady, she's been firm, she's been constant, and she has won the trust of people in Scotland, and that's the fundamental thing. Hence her approval ratings being sky-high still in Scotland. The big slogan for the SNP in the course of the next few weeks is going to be, trust me, I'm Nicola. And that's what the SNP will hope will lead them to a majority in May the 6th. You know, you had the referendum in 2014. There's clearly a push amongst a lot of SNP supporters at the moment for another referendum and another vote on independence. Is it something that you think is actually plausible? This is a very interesting debate in Scottish politics. The last referendum required consent. And the next referendum will require consent if it's going to be as Nicola Sturgeon wants, if it's going to be both legal and internationally recognised. So it really depends at the end of the day, and not necessarily on just what the SNP might want. The SNP really say that, um, and they believe this, that if support for independence continues to rise, that really the UK government will finally accede to a referendum. Mm. They've gone as far as to say in the past few months that that referendum could even take place before the end of this year, though nobody in their heart of hearts really believes that. The difficulty, of course, is it isn't going to happen if Boris continues to say no. Mm. And... I have to say, in any conversations that I've had and any journalists have had, you know, Boris and his cabinet are more implacably opposed to a referendum than any previous unionist government that there's been. There is a possibility. There are people calling for Nicola Sturgeon to step down as a result of some of the revelations that have come out and and the accusations of breaking the ministerial code. If she was to, what would it mean for the SNP and what would it mean for independence? One of the big issues for the SNP going forward is that one of the things that they've failed to do is to have a succession policy. If you were to ask people in the SNP who would lead the party if Nicola Sturgeon, for whatever reason, was not there, they find it a very, very difficult question to answer under Alex Salmon, the obvious successor for many years, of course, was Nicola Sturgeon, yet she's in a position where they really don't have a successor to her. And if it does come down to the electorate deciding, which way do you think they'll go? I think the SNP's popularity has slightly diminished as a result of this. I think if we were sitting here a month ago, they would have been in course for an absolute majority in the parliament. I think that is much less predictable now. Uh, The next few weeks in the election campaign are going to be interesting. Just for you personally, as somebody who'd worked very closely with both Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon, when all of this unfolded, I mean... Were you personally disappointed in both? Yeah, there's a sense of disappointment in Alec. I think Nicola has has, has been the first to concede that the Scottish government maybe should have done things better. But, you know, Nicola sat there for eight hours um, the other day giving, I thought, a very good account of herself and what she'd known about what had 
gone on did she get everything right she probably didn't but it was an exceptionally difficult set of circumstances in which she found herself do you think nicola sturgeon do you think she's likely to step down over this i think nicola sturgeon is an incredibly popular first minister a hundred point gap between the first minister of scotland and the prime minister of the United Kingdom. People have seen her being focused and serious around the pandemic. Support for the SNP and independence have soared under Nicola's leadership. So when we're emerging from a pandemic, when you need serious political leaders, um, the First Minister has risen to a formidable challenge. And I'm sure she'll remain First Minister. She's doing a good job, and it's not just my opinion. A lot of people think that she's doing a good job in very, very difficult circumstances. Would it be a disaster for the party if she was forced to go? Well, people used to say it would be a disaster for the party. When Alex Salmond went, Nicola and others would be the first to admit that the party and the movement is, is bigger than an individual. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Sunday Times political correspondent in Scotland, John Boothman, and former Member of Parliament for the SNP for North East Fife, Stephen Gethins. You can read more of John's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers today were Chris Hemmings, Asia Fuchs and Leona Hamid. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you have a story that you'd like us to cover or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.